So um, we're going to be um, kind of going through, uh, instead of church periods, um, post-Luther, it's likely that we're just going to be kind of hitting major people in the church. Um, however, there are going to be certain events that we're going to want to talk about, um, but, but even those will kind of be wrapped up in major theologians, major people within the church until we get um, kind of up to the 20th century, and then it's, it becomes very hard to sort of um, do history on something that's that near, and uh, so I don't know what we're going to do then, but today we continue uh, with uh, somebody in the Reformation. Um, this person, unlike Luther, everyone in here would have heard of Luther before. Um, this person is also fairly famous, although certainly less well-known than Luther. Um, his name is Ulrich, uh, or Ulrich, excuse me, Zwingli. Um, if you don't know of him, you ought to. He is, um, he is a reformer, in the same vein as Luther, but he comes to these conclusions and the Reformation that he leads um, in, in different ways. Um, he lacks a lot of Luther's bombastic qualities, um, but he makes up for that with uh, a continued uh, strong zeal for the, the good things of the Lord. So um, Zwingli is overshadowed by Luther um, in almost every way, um, but there's the only real reason for that is because um, the spotlight was put on Luther earlier. If it was put on Zwingli earlier, I think that uh, people would generally think that Luther came in his shadow. Uh, but as it is, um, Zwingli seems to run pretty contemporarily with Luther. They're born two months apart. Um, but he comes to his conclusions separately from Luther. Um, and he claimed that pretty early on. And um, and it seems like historians have kind of backed that, that, that Zwingli's writings um, show the same tendencies that Luther's did um, only much earlier, uh, or, or not earlier, but earlier than what Luther would have published his works on. So um, born in 1484, two months after Luther, um, he was born into a fairly um, uh, middle-class, poorish family. His dad was a farmer, um, uh, was involved sort of in local politics, but, but wasn't um, a man of means. Um, his uncle seemed to be more a man of means. He was the one, the uncle was the one who taught him how to read and write at a young age. Eventually, um, he's going to find his way to the university at Basel and then eventually at Bern, um, which are, you know, cities in Switzerland. And um, he's going to eventually earn his Master of Arts in 1506. Um, and like a lot of the great men that we talked about that came in church history, whether it's Athanasius or Augustine or the Cappadocian Fathers or Anselm Aquinas and even Luther, um, he too was drawn into monastic life. He was on his way to going into um, a monastery and to becoming a monk, um, which is it's so interesting that all of those great men that we just got done talking about were men who were in monasteries and, and were monks at one point. Um, but he was steered away from that by a couple of folk, and probably for good reason. Um, instead of going to the monastic life, he became a monk, or excuse me, he became a priest in Glarus um, in 1506. Um, and he was a little bit unique as a priest at that time. So um, while monks, uh, who like Luther was a monk who eventually became a priest, not all monks do that. Most of the priests at that time, especially in Switzerland, but basically throughout the Holy Roman Empire and throughout Europe, um, 
were very poorly educated. Um, they could read, um, but they didn't read all the time. Um, very few of them would have written, would have read all the way through the New Testament if, um, if they would have bothered to read much of it at all. Um, and, and part of that is their fault, and I don't want to say, hey, you know, I, I, I can understand why they wouldn't do that. I think um, it's important for all of us to read Scripture. Certainly for priests, it would be ultra important to read Scripture. Um, but again, the Catholic Church was set up at that time to not put a lot of emphasis on that kind of thing, right? So the Mass was a rote script that you went through. There wasn't a lot of, you, you didn't, you memorized the Mass. You, you didn't have to, to do much in terms of sermonizing. You, you, know, you, could, you could take a verse and they would typically, we're going to find that Zwingli changed this, um, but they would typically just take, you know, the, the gospel reading for the day, and they would have a homily based off of that. Um, and so uh, they, they wouldn't, they were given the scriptures that they were going to do a homily on if they did anything at all, uh, unless they just kind of spoke their mind on something else. Um, the mass was all done in, in Latin, and it had um, uh, to be memorized. And so uh, for their actual duties, their priestly duties, there wasn't much need to memorize the New Testament, to know the New Testament at all. Everything was kind of handed to them. Um, and so to be a man who had studied humanism um, from some of the leading humanists of the time, uh, so humanism is, again, this sort of anti-scholastic thing where um, it can be centered on humans themselves and how what is good for humans and things like that. But um, at some level, it just means that they, they've done a lot of reading in Greek um, philosophy. So Greek and Roman authors, uh, the same kind of what we, what we might call a classical education today was brand new in the, in the early part of the 1500s. And, um, and he would have been learning that. So he was a very well-educated man for being a priest. Um, eventually, he's going to get his hands on Erasmus's Greek New Testament. Um, so Erasmus, again, was probably the leading humanist of the 16th, late 15th, early 16th century. Um, well-regarded man by just about everybody. He wanted to take this sort of middle road between the hardcore Catholics and the Protestants, even though he remained a Catholic his whole life. Um, people didn't appreciate that, but one of the lasting works that, that he did was um, write up and, and provide a, sort of a critical copy of the Greek New Testament. Um, and eventually, Zwingli gets his hands on this. Um, he copies it, so he has a... Um, a, a, a um, I don't know if he borrowed it or something like that, but he actually made a physical copy with his own handwriting of the Greek New Testament, and then he started to teach himself Hebrew, um, and so he was very, very much grounded in those languages. Again, very odd for um, the priests of his day. And what we're going to find is that that love of Scripture, um, and I, I don't mean this in a bad way, and I'll try to explain what I mean by this, is going to set him apart a little bit from Luther. And so what ends up happening for Luther in a number of situations is convictions that come outside of Scripture. So one of the things that leads him to justification by faith, um, and it's not a small bit that leads him there. It's not just exegetical work. It's not as though he sat down and read Romans 1.16 and, and pondered it and, and looked up word studies and, and looked up other theologians to get there. He he basically realized, Luther did, that I have this very conscious knowledge of my sin, and the things that the church is telling me that I'm supposed to do to get rid of that, that knowledge of sin, that, that feeling of sinfulness, 
isn't working. Um, the gospel is supposed to do that, but what is the gospel? And he reads this in Paul, and it doesn't make sense, and so he provides an interpretation of it that makes sense, okay? But it's not really driven by Scripture. It's driven by his experience. Um, it's not that he's not doing good scriptural work. It's just the the experience that he has is kind of what drives it. Zwingli is going to be different than that. Zwingli is going to not be driven by experience. We don't know, you know, there's no major events that happen in his life. There's no thunderstorm. There's no epiphany. There's no throwing an ink bottle at the devil or anything like that. Um, he, he's just pretty, pretty straightforward. He's just going to kind of plow ahead with his life. And the Reformation is just going to happen naturally from him reading the New Testament. And we're going to see that time and time again that he just comes back and a lot of the changes that he makes... He doesn't make because he's greatly personally convinced of these things. He just kind of throws up his hands and says, well, it's not in the New Testament. I don't know what you want me to do. Um, and so he, he's much different than Luther in, in that vein. I shouldn't say much different, but he's different. Um, there's a couple of other things that kind of form the backdrop that's going to help understand where Zwingli's coming from and where he's going. Um, Zwingli is very patriotic. Um, so the Swiss cantons, the Swiss aren't really, again, a there, there are no nations at this time. Um, the Swiss have, have a whole bunch of different cantons that are kind of broken off, and they, they at this time are kind of loosely connected to the Holy Roman Empire, I believe, um, but they're not actually part of it. Um, and this sort of nationalistic pride is starting to build, not just in Germany and France and Spain and England, um, but it's building in, in Switzerland as well. And what, what really has a turning point in Zwingli's life is he is, um, the Swiss at this point in time don't have sort of a centralized army for themselves, but they, they have bodies of uh, groups of soldiers who go out as mercenaries, and the Swiss are hired out by the Holy Roman Empire or France to go to these battles, or, or are hired out by different, um, different barons or lords to do battle against somebody. And Zwingli goes out on a couple of these. One, they win. The other, they lose. And, and after all of this, he says, he, he sees this as just an immoral way of, of treating human beings. He said uh, that they are, they're basically just trading blood for gold and um, that he, he becomes a bit of a pacifist um, because of, of that. Now, that bit of pacifism is going to fly out the window um, at other times, uh, so he's not a complete pacifist. Later in his life, when the Reformation is starting to tear Switzerland apart and cantons are against cantons, he's going to um, be very happy to go back out to war. As a matter of fact, he's going to lose his life on the battlefield, so he's not quite a pacifist, but he's, he's certainly not gung-ho about using military uh, troops in that mains. And the, the nationalism is, again, going to help him be pitted against Rome um, because what we're going to find is that um, the local people are going to kind of be fed up with the, the stuff that's happening in Rome, and they're going to view, <clears throat> view Rome as sort of an outside authority looking in, uh, even on secular matters, and this is going to drive them further away from, uh, from Rome. So um, all, all of this was helpful as he's doing his priestly duties. All these things are going on, um, but he's not to the stage where he's actually reforming anything yet. He's, he's, doing, uh, he's doing sort of an inner Catholic reformation, but it hasn't broken out into anything. He hasn't transgressed bounds. He's not, you know, excommunicated by the Pope or anything at this time. Between 1518 and 1521, um, his preaching is starting to get noticed, and he's going to get a bump uh, up to a more important post. He goes to a place where a lot of people are making pilgrimages, 
Um, and he, so he's seeing these people come to make pilgrimages because this is now a, a holy site, apparently. And um, while it, it's kind of an odd thing, he, he takes it upon himself to start preaching against pilgrimages for the people who are on pilgrimages to come to hear him preach. So he's, he's in a place where people are traveling for pilgrimages, and he's looking at them and saying, pilgrimages are stupid. Um, he, he's a little bit more eloquent than that, but he's basically saying, this is, this is not helpful to you. Uh, and the reason why is, again, he, as he's always going to do, he's just going to throw up his hands and say, because we don't find them in the New Testament. We don't find these things in Scripture anywhere. And so there's no reason to think that these are actually beneficial for you spiritually um, or, or any other reason for you to show up here. Um, as he begins to do this, then um, people are... And again, notice the difference between what he comes to realize when it comes to relics and pilgrimages and how Luther realizes it. And this is just one more way to note this. Luther realizes that's not worthwhile when he goes to the sacred steps and he actually goes up on his knees kissing each one and gets to the top and says, I don't know that that did anything for me. And that's one of the things that gets him to realize that I don't know that pilgrimages do anything. That's led by Luther's experience. Even though he backs it up with the New Testament, Zwingli is just led there by the New Testament. It's not like anything happens to Zwingli. He just, he says, I've read the New Testament several times and I can't find pilgrimages anywhere. I don't know what use they are. Go home, stop doing these kinds of things. <clears throat> so eventually he is going to get posted in Zurich. He's going to get another promotion and he's going to go to Zurich. Um, and that's where he's going to spend the rest of his life for the most part. Um, one of the reasons why he gets the post in Zurich is not just that he's a good preacher, um, but humanism was a big thing at the time. Um, they knew that he had been trained in humanism, and so uh, a lot of the folks in Zurich were, in, in, in this sense, fairly progressive, and they wanted somebody there who would be able to preach to them with humanism kind of in mind. Um, but he does something very odd when he first gets there. January 1st of what, 2015, 18, not 20. It didn't that long. Uh, January 1st of 1519, um, he is given in the liturgy of the Roman Catholic Church, they've got scripture readings that are set out for them, and he's given the scripture reading of the New Testament that he is supposed to do a homily on or preach on, and he doesn't do that. He starts in Matthew 1, and he starts, he, this is the very first sermon he's got at this new post, and he says, open, we're going we're gonna to talk about Matthew 1. And he, he then spends the rest of that year going through the book of Matthew. Then he, when he's finished with Matthew, he goes up to the book of Acts. He finishes Acts. He goes to the rest of the epistles of the New Testament. And he basically just preaches through the New Testament. And um, again, it's not, it's not something that's groundbreaking. Like he, He's not going to get in, in a huge amount of trouble for this. He is free to do what he wants uh, as far as that goes. Um, but there is a, a huge difference between somebody who is willing to do that and takes the New Testament seriously and somebody who is just going to give a short homily for something. So for, for Zwingli, the preaching of the word is going to be center place. Um, and it's going to cause him to do things that I think are not great, but at the very least, the preaching of the word is meant to be centered. Um, as he's doing this, though, uh, he is going to start using the words of Scripture to critique uh, the way in which the church is handling itself. And so he looks at, at a lot of the priests, and he, he thinks that the priests are lazy. He thinks that they're living on high um, because they, they're getting paid well to not do much, and so they're just lazy and, and living really, really much better than the poor who are around them. Um, and not only that, but they're, you know, the, the whole issue of um, 
priests not being able to marry and them still engaging in sexual activity is a thing that's still going on. And so he is really laying into the, the, the priests and trying to reform the church through these things. The next thing that he sets his eye on after that is preaching about veneration of the saints. And he says, there is absolutely no reason why saints should ever be venerated. Um, and if you're going to learn their history, you ought to learn what actually happened instead of these folk stories about the miracles that they did. Um, and his whole point is, Again, if you read through the New Testament, we just don't get anything like that. We've got this church at Corinth, which is filled with sinful people, and Paul at the very beginning there is calling them all saints. So stop venerating some people as saints and other people as not being saints. He just says you've got to stop doing it. So again, all this stuff is happening within the realm of the Catholic Church, and and he's not not rocking the boat too much. Um, In 1519, uh, this is again well after the... Uh, 1517 posting of the 95 Theses. Um, indulgences were still being sold in Germany and um, in the Holy Roman Empire and Switzerland being kind of in the middle of the Holy Roman Empire and Zurich being there as well. Um, has a man named uh, Berharden Sanson who is going to be selling indulgences for the exact same reason that Tetzel was selling indulgences to other parts of Germany like Wittenberg uh, to drum up money for St. Pete's Cathedral. Um, or St. Pete's Basilica. And um, so Zwingli has read the 95 Theses. Uh, he agrees with Luther. It doesn't look like he did a lot of work on indulgences before that, but he, he seems to agree with Luther. Um, and, and all he does when it comes to this, he doesn't write a whole bunch of theological treaties, doesn't get in trouble for it, but he just goes to the city government of Zurich. So um, the way in which things work, the the Governments are tied directly to the churches. It's a very weird thing, especially for Americans. Um, This is one of the problems that that Zwingli is going to have and reformed people in general are going to have. They're tying in the government with with the church. And so he goes to the the city council and he says, listen, just don't let him in. Like, just tell tell him that he is not welcome here and do not allow him to enter into the city gates. And um, so they, they listen to him, they listen to Zwingli, and they basically go back to the, the Bishop of Constance who is over this entire area. And they say, we're, we're not going to let him in. Um, and because Luther had made such a big deal about it before, and people were already on edge, um, fighting people over indulgences is not something the Catholic Church wants to do at this point in time. And so they, they say, okay, if you don't want to let him in, we're not going to fight you on it. He'll go to other places. And so uh, Zwingli keeps um, Sanson from being able to um, sell his wares there. Um, Later in that same year, um, in August, there is a plague that hits Zurich. Um, Not, I think it's a different plague altogether, uh, but it is a plague that kills a quarter of the people of Zurich. And uh, a lot of those who had means left, uh, to give you a picture of who Zwingli was, He stays in Zurich. Uh, He does get sick, um, but he doesn't die. He gets very, very sick, but he doesn't die. Uh, And he ends up living through it. And then we hit the series of years where he starts to um, make changes that are going to get him in trouble. So between 1522 and 1524, he continues to preach about the 
problems of the Catholic Church. And so he hits hard on a couple of topics. He hits hard on superstition within the church, these ideas of pilgrimages and relics and, um, and, and just the superstitious way in which the church was going about their business, especially after the, the, the Black Plague of the 1300s. Um, they were always very superstitious about everything, and he was really preaching against that, uh, preaching against immoral living, not only of the laity, but of, of priests as well. Um, he preached... Uh, for the advantage of the poor, he um, was a fan of these monastic, and this happened a little bit later, but the monastic orders, the mendicant orders who were kind of the military wings of monasticism, uh, we talked about them, we talked about the Templars just briefly in one of these pre prior to this. Um, he said, we don't need them anymore. Why don't we break them up, sell their property, and give the proceeds to the poor? So he was, he was, really big on, on making sure that the poor were taken care of, um, and he wanted to do everything that he could to help them. Um, he obviously preached against indulgences quite a bit, especially after they started being sold in the, in the cantons, um, and then making preaching sort of the center place of everything that the church does. He, he wanted it to be center uh, in everything. Um, eventually, he is going to make waves, and so I'm, I want to simply ask, I know you guys won't know this, but I want I want you to give it your best shot. Uh, what is the issue that gets him in trouble and that, that people look at as the kickstart of the Swiss Reformation? So what, what, what does, let me put this a different way, what does he do that kicks off the Swiss Reformation? Anybody have a guess? No. 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 He ate a sausage. <laughs> it's, it's literally called the sausage affair, uh, which, which is fantastic that the Swiss, like, the Swiss Reformation was started by the sausage affair. So him, literally, and it's, it's two sausages. Like, this is a very, very accurate description of what's going on. I don't know why they know this. It was like him and a dozen other guys. They had two sausages and they cut it up, but it was during Lent, right? And they weren't supposed to eat meat. And again, what's, when, when people come to him and are like, what are you doing, doofus? What is his answer? It's not in the New Testament. I don't know why you guys are throwing a fit about this. It's not in the New Testament, and this is yummy. So they, it's just, and, and it's, a, it's clearly a protest. It, it doesn't seem like he's like throwing it in people's faces, not literally the sausage, but he, he it looks like they, they literally just did this to prove a point. Right? It doesn't seem like they were going out of their way to just gobble up all the meat they could. They specifically had these sausages in order to, to do this. It's, you know, if only the Baptists had started by having like the donut conundrum or something like that, that would be, be a good way for us to start. But it was the sausage affair is literally what it's called, or the affair of the sausage, which makes it sound a little bit fancier. Um, sounds like something that would be in a, the title of a sitcom or something like that. Um, so that's, that's in 1522, and um, his, his argument's pretty clear. Um, Zwingli, what we're going to find is that Zwingli is a little inconsistent on some things, but I don't really want to blast him too much for that. Um, so when it came to things like Lent, he would say, you don't need to do this. The whole point of him doing it is, is him saying, hey, we are free to eat what we want to eat, Okay. However, 
his point is that it's not found in the New Testament, therefore you're free to do it. When it comes to other things, he's not quite like that. So um, although he was apparently a brilliant violinist, and he, was, he played like seven or eight other instruments as well, um, he loved music, he was apparently incredibly good at it, and he loved to teach music. Um, he would never allow any instruments to be played during the service. Why? It wasn't found in the New Testament. The same reason why, why a lot of um, the, there are certain groups of um, denominations and even parts of denominations um, who think that a cappella singing is the only thing that is allowed, and the reason being it's not found in the New Testament, okay? Um, which is an odd, odd argument to make when you're an infant baptizer, and the whole, the whole reason is because you find a link to circumcision in that, but you know, how many times do the Psalms talk about playing of instruments? But that's not in the New Testament. So it's, it's a very strange argument to me. And, and what you're going to find is that he's a little bit inconsistent about stuff like that. Um, and, and the idea of um, preaching taking center stage, he also was kind of the guy who said, the Lord's Supper should only be taken four times a year because it should not be the most important thing that people do. Um, the preaching is supposed to take center stage. So preaching is going to happen every single week. Four times a year, we're going to take the Lord's Supper, um, which is, I think, missing the point of the Lord's Supper. Um, but again, I think that he's being a little bit inconsistent, but not terribly so. Um, after, after the Lent fiasco, uh, later on in 1522, he is going to ask the Bishop of Constance to release him from his vow of celibacy. He and several other priests are going to ask for this. Um, and again, the inconsistency in him is coming out. He is asking for this because he is already married, um, which, you know, I, this is, I don't think that he was the, the one who coined this term, but it is the whole forgiveness is, is easier to ask for than permission kind of thing. And so uh, he asked for it in 1522. He's been married for a while. It was a private ceremony, um, which, which, so there were witnesses. He, he did it right. So there's a private, um, you got to watch how you, how you write history, because he has a public ceremony two years later, um, after all of the, when the break from Rome becomes very clear, and, and he's still in Zurich, and Zurich is with him in the Reformation, he's going to have this public ceremony two years later for him and his wife, um, Anna. Um, but in the writing of the history, it says that after, after that public ceremony, um, she had she had their first child like three months later, but it makes it seem like they weren't, the writer made it seem like they hadn't been privately married before, like he just knocked her up and then, you know, they got married like, uh, you know, three months before the child came, which is not, not the case for uh, Ulrich. He had been married for a couple of years already. Um, his wife's name, Anna Reinhardt, um, again, they would be publicly married in 1524, but this is, this is then running off of and, and doing the exact same thing that that Luther did. Luther's going to ask about the same thing. He's, he's not going to ask. By that time, he's already been excommunicated, so he doesn't care what Rome says, um, and they're going to start marrying people up there. The priests are going to start marrying in Wittenberg. Um, this is the same kind of thing um, where, where he just throws up his hands and he says, listen, there's nothing in the New Testament about priests being celibate. Like, there's just no indication that that's the way it goes. And he's probably also reading, you know, First Timothy and, and the instructions to elders about managing a household and having wives and things like that. So um, very, very much um, trying to follow the pattern of the New Testament. Um, eventually, because of this break 
with the Roman Catholic Church over the Lent thing and over the marriage thing, um, they're going to have what they call disputations, which are formal and important. These aren't, these aren't like just academic debates. They are debates, but they're not just academic debates, and they're not diets because no one's on trial or anything like that. But the disputation is important because what they're going to do is they're going to have the city council and other important groups sort of deciding who they're going to approve and why they're going to approve them. And so uh, Zwingli is going to debate this guy named Fabri, and um, 600 people show up, which is a pretty sizable crowd for back then. And the whole point is to say, is, is Zwingli allowed to keep preaching? And, and the, the issues that Zwingli has, are they, are they things that we should shut down or things that we should listen to? And so Fabri is the guy who comes for the Roman Catholic Church. And um, it is said that Fabri does not believe it's okay to debate these theological issues in front of lay people. And so there's 600 people who are there, and he says, yeah, I'm not going to debate you on this. This is the statement of the church. You either follow it or you don't, um, which is not the way to win a debate in 1524, because that's just not flying, and uh, you got you to gotta do better than that. Um, and so they, they look at Zwingli, and they say, well, okay, I guess if that's how you're going to say it, Zwingli wins because he seems to be armed with scripture and he seems to be armed with, um, with arguments and you're not providing any. And so um, the city council says, hey, we want you to continue to preach, continue to preach. Um, eventually, there's going to be a second dispute, disputation um, because of two major issues that are going on. One of icons and the use of iconography in... Um, in churches, uh, so stained glass and stuff like that, that that show pictures of the saints and things like that. This is, it looks like there might be a person up there, but you can't tell it's abstract enough, so we're, we're safe. No icons. You got to really stretch. It's very abstract. Um, but the, the iconography in, in other churches at the time were not was not like that, and so there's a disputation about that and the mass. And the mass was kind of an important thing because they wanted to say, hey, should we even be doing the mass anymore? Like, wh why are we, at this point in time, Zwingli was still doing some of the Mass, I think. Um, and they, need, they needed to decide. These, these cantons needed to decide, are we going to continue doing the Mass or not? They decided that they, um, the iconography was going to go, so they were, they were going to remove some of these images from churches. But um, the Mass was not something that they wanted to decide at this time, so they kind of they kicked that down the road. And basically they said, this is what's going to happen. If you, are, if you are a pastor and, and you're leading your congregation and you feel like the Mass is not something you want to do, then don't do it. But if you feel like it should be something you do, do it. And what this ended up leading to was probably a situation we have for, for a lot of Protestant churches where every church handled their liturgy in a completely and utterly different fashion. Um, and for them... You have to remember, they were coming from this incredibly highly structured way of worshiping their whole lives. This seemed to them to be utterly chaos. So, and they didn't, they didn't deal well with this. So eventually what Zwingli is going to do is he's going to put together a liturgy that is going to stabilize the worship eventually. Um, and mass is going to go. And so they're going to get rid of the mass. Um, one of the major things that takes up Zwingli's life that we're not going to talk about today because we're going to talk about these folks next week, um, are the Anabaptists. Um, so Zwingli is actually walking kind of a middle road. Um, he was clearly 
reformed in, in one sense that he was not Catholic anymore. Um, he had moved away from Catholicism. So if, you're, if you want to think of like conservative and progressive in using today's terms, but applying it to the 1520s in Zurich, the conservative faction would have obviously been the Catholic faction. The ultra left-wing progressive folk were the Anabaptists. And the Anabaptists were just about, they, were, they wanted to set, well, they wanted to set fire to the world is kind of what was going on. Like they, they were, they didn't want, some of them were really, really radical. They didn't want governments, you know, they were, they were for rebaptizing people, which is what the name Anabaptist means, they're rebaptizers. And um, one of the, while Luther has run-ins with them and other reformers are going to have run-ins with them, uh, they become um, somewhat infamous because everyone's against them. So even, even the Protestants are against the Anabaptists. The Catholics are clearly against the Anabaptists. Um, they, they can't find a good home to land in. Um, but one of the chief places for that um, is Zurich. And so they, that's kind of one of their chief homes is in Zurich, and, uh, which is odd because um, Zwingli never, never, never kind of caved into that belief for a second. It's not like he was, he was working with them and, and they were thinking about baptism and um, he kind of was on their side and then he changed his mind or something like that. He was never on their side. He, he didn't believe in, in anything but infant baptism ever. So um, that is a bit of a problem. Um, eventually, um, everything um, goes crazy. So after 1524, um, just like what happens in Germany, that occurs in Switzerland as well. Switzerland's not an actual place yet, but in the Swiss canons, cantons, um, they, they start to break up. Some of them are going to be pro-Catholic, some of them are going to be pro-Protestant, um, and um, everything kind of goes haywire after that. Um, there is one other major, major thing in his, in his life um, that kind of signals his distance from Luther, and that is um, on the presence of the Lord in the Eucharist. And so um, this is begun, this whole issue has really begun by um, Karl Stott, who you might remember as being the guy who Eck um, falsely led into a debate when he really wanted to debate Luther. And Karl Stott has, um, again, like a lot of people in Wittenberg, took Luther's ideas and sort of extended them. And one of the places that he extended them to was in the real presence of the Lord in the Eucharist. And he said, just, it's there's no real presence of the Lord in the Eucharist. It's not there. And um, Zwingli read his arguments and had come to that same conclusion before. Uh, Luther picked up his pen and wrote against it because um, he obviously thought that it was important to maintain the real presence of the Lord there. Um, Zwingli and others, there's several other reformers uh, who, who stand against it. And so there's kind of this Lutheran faction, and then this what is going to end up being the Reformed faction further to the south. Um, and they meet in, in Marburg. Um, and these Protestants meet in Marburg because they're like, what they're hoping to get is... is a theological basis for kind of saying we all agree on these things and it's it's almost getting close to setting up an anti-catholic church okay so instead of breaking up into a million of tiny tiny pieces what they're trying to do is to to they're not trying to break the church but they're trying to say we're a separate organization but we're unified together in these things 
And um, so the Marburg Colloquy is what it's called, and it was important as they, they attempted to do these things. Um, Zwingli, when the, the, they come together, they say, okay, what do we have in common? And they list 14 things that they have in common. And, and a lot of them are around the things that you would think that they would talk about. So um, Nicene Trinitarianism is there, check. And they, they specifically mention the Nicene Creed. They say, hey, we're, we're all on board with that. Um, Christological points, although we're going to find out that the problem of the Eucharist is a Christological point, but nevertheless, um, as far as Christology goes, being born of the Virgin Mary, same things found in the Nicene Creed. They say, check, we're, we're with one another on that. Justification by faith, check. Uh, needing to hear the word proclaimed for salvation, check. Um, there's two different ones on baptism, um, which is strange. They couldn't collapse that into one, but nevertheless, they really wanted to get in that they, they didn't like kids um, not being baptized, and so they did two on that. Um, they talked about councils and confessions, um, how they're used and, and their use. Um, the the usefulness and goodness of secular authorities, how to appropriate tradition. And so there's, there's 14 different things that they've got, short little statements that they're, all of them agree to. They check it off. comes to the Eucharist, and they agree on certain points on the Eucharist. But they say we, we can't fully get together. And so this is where I had it wrong. Luther didn't etch it into the table, but he did write in chalk on the table the Latin phrase, Hacas corpus meum, which is, this is my body. And, and throughout the whole debate, he just kept pointing at it, saying, this is my body. Um, and his whole point was, listen, Jesus is saying that you must eat his flesh and drink his blood. And one of Zwingli's arguments is, listen, you, you, understand, how, uh, you understand how gross that is, Right? Like, you understand the weirdness of what you're saying, Luther. And on top of that, you understand the implications for what, what you're saying, that you are eating the flesh of Christ. And, and Zwingli, um, Luther uh, comes back to him and says, listen, you, I'm, it's still bread and wine. So realize that. But it's not, it's a mystical presence, but it's still the presence of his body. And so Luther holds this it's, it's really difficult to wrap your mind around what Luther is actually saying because he doesn't want to say it's just like the spirit of Christ present there. He, he actually does believe it's the body and the blood of Jesus Christ in, with, and around the elements. And so you are actually eating the body and the blood of Jesus really and truly, but it's still bread and wine. So it, And Luther, I think, would just stand up and say, I don't care about your rationality this is what the New Testament says. Okay, so I think that that's Luther's argument. Zwingli says, basically, listen, Christ's body and his blood are the human portions of the one person. Okay, so there's one person but has two natures, and the body and the blood happen to belong to the human nature. That human nature is not, by the way, omnipresent, and it can't be omnipresent. And so, not only is it gross, but it's a misunderstanding of the very nature of Christ, that he, he can't be everywhere present in his physical body. He can be everywhere present by the Spirit via his divine nature, 
but he cannot be everywhere present in his body. And that's precisely what you're saying. Um, and so Luther would then point at the table and say, this is my body. Which you can tell I'm not on Luther's side on this because I'm not being very fair to him. But nevertheless, um, he's wrong and so it's okay. And he's not here. Um, which doesn't actually make it okay, but nevertheless. Um, so I, I think that um, when we talk about Luther's viewpoint, um, I think that it's just really difficult to maintain in a, in a very logical fashion what's going on there. So Bree mentioned, I have several concerns with Luther's viewpoint. Bree mentioned the other day that if you're going to use the book of John that way, there's a whole bunch of very strong metaphors, not similes. He's not saying, I am, I am like the door, right? Uh, I am like the vine. It's not a simile, but it's just a flat-out, strong, old metaphor. I am this. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. Um, which is fine. The good shepherd thing is not that hard, but I am the door, I am the vine. And so um, saying um, this is my body, right, it, it fits in with those particular patterns of Jesus' speech within the book of John. And we don't, you know, Luther's not arguing that Jesus is an actual door that you've got to get to and walk through to get into heaven, right? He's, he's not arguing that, and he's not writing down, you know, hoc est door meum. I don't know what that even means. I don't know Latin. So, um, uh, I'm glad that this is being recorded. Uh, so, y'all should really forget it. I just said that. Um, he's, not, he's not arguing that way, but he is for this particular thing. It, it doesn't make sense. I think Zwingli is right when he's talking about the way in which the human nature of Christ has to work. Christ can be everywhere present. So when he looks at his disciples and says, you know, in Matthew 18, he says it. Matthew 28, he says it. Um, famously in the Great Commission, um, you know, go um, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, making disciples of all people of all nations. Wherever you are, I am with you, right? So if you, if you go, I'm with you. Same thing in, in Matthew 18. It says the same thing, I will be with you. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I will be. So there's this, this presence of Christ that's there. But his humanity does limit him to a particular location. And so what... What Luther was hanging on was the fact that Jesus is a person. There's a unity in person. And so what Luther is hanging on is saying, well, because there's this unity in person, if Jesus is there, Jesus is there. Okay? So that's a little bit more understandable. You can't have the spirit of Jesus there without Jesus being there because he's not, like, separated out from his human nature. You can't do that. Um, Zwingli is then saying... Yeah, but his human nature limits where he can go because human nature is not omnipresent. Um, so it's, it's actually a fairly difficult thing to understand and to work through philosophically. Um, but I, again, I, I think that the issue is that Zwingli's right. Um, the human nature is limited in that way. We, we don't expect that we're going to be omnipresent. Um, and, and the idea that you are taking in the Lord Luther wanted this to be more than a sign. Um, and one of the reasons why Luther needed this is because the taking of the body and the blood of the Lord was, was really closely linked to forgiveness for him. Like, he took those words really seriously. And so um, he didn't think that you could be saved outside of incorporating the body and the blood of the Lord into you um, by faith. I mean, you would say it was by faith, but still, it's, it's close to the forgiveness of sins. Um, Zwingli doesn't argue that it's just memorial, but he's pretty close to that. Um, 
he, he, he attaches more significance to it than that. Um, he believes that Christ is actually there. He just doesn't think that he's there in the, in the cup and in the body. Um, he's just not, he's not there. Um, I, I think that we would be much closer to Zwingli um, than we would be to, and this becomes the Reformed position, um, so it's pretty standard that um, we're not on the commemorative side. We're not, we are not supposed to be, I don't think it's right to be all the way on one side where you're saying what you were doing is just eating bread and drinking wine and trying to remember what Jesus has done, right? The, the Lord's Supper and baptism as ordinances are spoken of in, in much more glowing terms than just, just things that you're doing to remember things, okay? So it's not just a memorial thing, um, but it's not this weird grace being given to you simply because you're doing it kind of thing either. And, and, and again, Luther's position is not just that you're eating bread and, and drinking wine. You are eating the Lord's body in a mystical way and drinking the Lord's blood in a mystical way, um, which just doesn't seem to jive with the New Testament. So um, Zwingli has problems, and, uh, and he doesn't always work all those out. Um, we're going to get to Anabaptists next week and see some of the issues that they have. Um, and eventually we're going to get to Calvin. And Calvin is where all of this is going to kind of come together. Because up until Calvin, and you're going to find the Catholic Reformation is going to counter-Reformation is going to do this as well, it takes a while for people to kind of get their heads around what's going on. These first-generation reformers are not going to be able to put everything together. They're going to have inconsistencies as they're working this stuff out. And so Luther and Zwingli both have these major sort of inconsistencies as they're trying to work through what they believe. Calvin is the first Protestant guy who can come and kind of pack all of it into one kind of lump thing. Um, the major difference between Calvinism and Lutheranism, and this is an important thing to remember, when you hear Calvinism, most people think of tulip and the five points and things like that. That is not the major difference between Lutheranism and what Calvin's going to say. There is one major glaring difference between Calvin and Luther, and it's not on the five solas, it's not on the five points, because Cal- you, you've, heard, you've heard Luther talk about faith is a gift, from God. That's why we baptize infants, because faith is a gift from God, right? So he is very much on, on Calvin's side on all that. The major difference is just the, the Eucharist. It's just what they make of the Lord's Supper. And it is important enough to Luther where he just didn't consider these folks. I think later on he, he eased on this stance, um, but he didn't think that— he left Marburg thinking they're not Christian. Um, that might have just been Luther, <laughs> but— but the Lord's Supper was a big deal, and, um, and they took this as being very important. So, um, so Ulrich, and sometimes you'll see it as Holdrich, uh, Zwingli, um, but a uh, very important guy, one of the more important reformers we have. There's other guys who, who hold some position of importance during the same age, but um, between him, he, he and Luther are the, the most important first-generation reformers. So any, any questions about Ulrich. And his last name's super fun, so he's got that going for him. Zwingli. The sausage affair. Remember that? Pat just walked in. She has no idea what the sausage affair is, but it's a... Uh, <laughs> but um, it was an important part, so that, if that's all you remember, that's, we've, we've done a good thing, so...
Let's pray and uh, thank God for our time. Father, we are thankful for uh, Zwingli. We're thankful for um, his his steadfastness in the face of difficulties. We're thankful for his reliance upon um, Scripture. He is a really good model as to how to reach careful and considered conclusions from Scripture and then how to walk faithfully in those conclusions. Um, grateful for that, that he isn't overly bombastic. He seems to live a, a quiet, very happy life. Um, just He seems to be a model of what a, a, a good pastor, a good theologian uh, ought to be. So we're grateful to um, study his life, grateful for the life that he lived and for the help that he provided to um, Protestant theology. Um, I hope that uh, our time studying him is helpful for all of us and that you bless um, the learning that we've done in this time and certainly allow us to uh, think deeply about these things and especially about the Lord's Supper. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.